You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we start the episode with a Q&A from listeners' questions about stock investing. Then I sit down with Anthony Zhang to talk about how he built businesses at a young age and why investors should consider investing in fine wine. Anthony is only 25 and has already built and sold two companies, secured funding from Mark Cuban and Mark Burnett, and received the Teal Fellowship. Anthony is now the founder and CEO of his third company, VinoVest. I think Anthony's story is incredibly inspiring for anyone who is looking to start a business, and I'm super excited to share our conversation. Let's get into this week's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And as I mentioned in the intro, we are going to start this week's episode with a Q&A with me going over some of the most popular stock investing questions that I've gotten from you guys, the listeners. And then we will get into a conversation with Anthony Zhang about his story becoming an entrepreneur and investing in alternative assets like fine wine. So the first question we're going to look at today comes from Chris L. on Instagram. He asked, when looking at companies to invest in, what's the biggest deal breaker? What makes you drop it and just move on? And so for me, there are three big things that when I'm just quickly going over companies, just quickly looking for investment opportunities, there are three main things I look for first. And if they don't meet these three things, then I automatically just kind of cross them off my list. There are many other things that once I get into a deep analysis would cause me to not be interested or not make an investment. But these are the three biggest things that you can tell just from a high level. These are like the biggest deal breakers when I'm just quickly going through the analysis. And those three things are too much debt, a lack of cash flow, and then subjectively, if I just don't like their business model, their products, or their services. And so I want to dive into each of these a little bit. And the reason number one is debt is because I don't personally like debt, both personally for me also for individuals and corporations, typically. Now, a reasonable amount of debt is okay. And that's going to depend on the company, the industry, its size, its future. The interest rate environment does make debt attractive. So I understand that. I understand that companies are able to borrow at very attractive rates. And so that totally makes sense. And I'm okay with companies having some debt. If that's the optimal structure, financial structure for them, then I get that. But when it comes to the level of debt, that's more what I'm concerned of. If it's in relation to their cash flow and things of that nature. So if they just have too much debt, that's a big red flag for me. And that's a big deal breaker, especially in the market that we're in. Because if companies... That's a fixed cost usually for the company. And so if they, you know, we enter into an economic recession or they have issues or a global pandemic like we're experiencing now, if they have a ton of debt, debt can be hard to service. And that can make you go bankrupt. If you have no debt, it's a lot harder to go bankrupt. Even if your earnings drop, if your cash flow drops, if you have no one that you owe money to, then you just have shareholders in a publicly traded company, then it's very hard to go bankrupt. But if you have debtors that you owe money to on a schedule, they're the ones that can take you bankrupt. So for me, debt is a big thing that I, I try to avoid. Again, in, in reasonable amounts, it's okay. But in general, if the debt levels are too high, that's a big red flag for me. Point number two is the lack of cash flow. 
And the reason it's cash flow, not profits, is because I'm not really too worried about profits on the income statement or net income. There's that's generally a, a make believe number. Once you understand like the accounting behind an income statement, you can see that net income could really be any number you want. You just manipulate a few things and you can more or less make net income what you want it to be. So what I'm really interested in is what Buffett calls owner earnings or free cash flow. These numbers are a lot harder to manipulate and they actually show the real cash that a business is generating. For me personally, I don't really care what a company can earn in profit because that's not necessarily what the company can use to pay its debt. For example, we just talked about debt. The profit doesn't matter because it's not what they're using to pay off those debts. That's not what they're paying to re- that they can use to reinvest in the business. That's not what they're paying out to owners. What matters to me is the actual cash that the business generates that they have left over that they can use to reinvest in the business, pay off debt, things of that nature. When it comes to cash flow, a dip in 2020 this year is okay. We are going through a global pandemic and I understand that and some businesses are going to be have some trouble because of that. But I want to see strong cash flow in prior years. And it doesn't necessarily have to even be growing. That's nice and ideally I'd like to see cash flow grow, but I just want to see strong cash flow generation. If a business is able to generate 500 million dollars every single year in just free cash, that's an awesome business that can generate a ton of cash. There's going to be a value at which I'd be willing to buy that. Of course the valuation has to be right, but I want to see the strong cash flow. So a lack of growth is okay as long as that's built into your models. You just don't want to build a discounted cash flow model and have 10% growth annually when the company is not actually growing. So as long as you include that, growth or lack thereof is okay in cash flow for me, but I don't want to see a lack of cash flow generation in general. So I'm okay with a company generating $500 million in cash flow every single year with zero growth, but I don't want to see a company that generates no cash flow, typically. Now, there are exceptions to these rules. I do invest in high-flying tech companies from time to time. There are some companies that aren't profitable, aren't cash flow positive, and those are more of a bet on the third item that we'll talk about. But in general, if a company has too much debt or they're not generating any cash flow, those are our big red flags for me. And the third thing I mentioned is their business model, their products, or their services. So The first two things we mentioned are something that you could quickly look at a company's financial statements and analyze and know whether they meet these criteria or not. The third item is where I think a lot of value can be derived for us as investors because supercomputers, financial models, they could very easily look at the debt levels and the cash flow and they can analyze those way faster than we can as humans. But what computers and models and AI can't do is they can't really analyze the subjective nature of a business model. They can't really analyze the products or services. And so a deal breaker for me is if I don't believe in a company's business model, their products, their services, if I don't think they'll maintain their their competitive advantage. What I do like is when I'm able to find a company that I know their product is great. So for example, Zoom. I invested in Zoom in October of 2019. This was what, five months, six months before the pandemic was announced? I had no idea that a global pandemic was coming, but I used Zoom to record this podcast with our guests and I used it almost every day. And I knew it was a great solution. I believed in the solution. I liked the products and services. And so I made an investment. And then, of course, the pandemic came and that has provided extra firepower to Zoom. But I think it still would have been successful in the long term without the, the pandemic. But this just goes to show if 
if a company doesn't have good products or services that I don't believe in, I don't invest in the company, even if typically, even if the valuation is attractive, because I need to be able to have conviction that I believe in the company long term. If I don't have that conviction, if I don't believe in the subjective nature of their business model or the products or services, that's a big red flag for me and not something that I could typically invest in. So for me, when I'm looking at companies to invest in, the biggest deal breakers are too much debt, a lack of cash flow, and me not believing in their products or services, or the lack of quality in their products and services. The second question comes from James Ripion. He also asked this to me on Instagram. He said, what is your position on going all in on one investment when young and as an entrepreneur? And if I had to answer this in one sentence, I would say I like it. I typically don't mind a lot of risk. And if you're young, you can typically recover from losses from high-risk investments due to the amount of time that you have ahead of you. Now, just because you're young, I don't think you should go all in on an investment. That doesn't mean that everybody who's young should go in and just put 100% of their money in one investment, whether it's stocks, real estate, a business, anything like that. It really depends on your personality, your risk tolerance, and then probably most importantly, your conviction on an idea. If you're okay with a lot of risk and you're fully sold on an idea and convinced that it will work, then I don't see anything wrong with going all in on something. Typically, this works better for younger investors. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to older investors, even if you can stomach a lot of risk or you're fully sold on an idea and convinced on it. I typically wouldn't think that that's a good idea for older investors. But younger investors, if you have those things, then I think it's okay. I haven't personally gone fully all in 100% with any positions, but I have a few positions that are pretty big percentages of my portfolio. Some are close to or even over 20%. So they're not fully like all in bets. They're not all 100% bets on a given company, but I'd say that they're pretty big bets overall. So in summary, if you're young, you believe in the idea and you're okay with potentially losing all of that money, I think going all in could work for you. You have plenty of time to make that money back. Typically, when you're young, you don't have as much money either. That's another point. So typically, if you're 20, 25 years old, you may have five, $10,000 to invest. And that seems like a lot of money. And of course it is. But in the grand scheme of things, that ideally shouldn't be a lot for you in the grand scheme of your life. So if you invest $5,000 all in on an idea with huge upside and you lose $5,000, of course, it's going to suck. But in the grand scheme of things, you could be 50 and have a million dollars in savings. Then if you go all in, now you have a million dollars at risk. So for young people, it's a combination of having plenty of time to make that back. If you had lost that $5,000, you have plenty of time. If you're only 20, 25 years old, even 30, you still have 30 years to make back that $5,000 that you lost. And you don't have a lot at risk. Whereas if you're older, you don't have as much time to make that money back and you potentially have more money to risk. The third question comes from Matthew Keevy, also from Instagram. He asked, do economic stats and outlooks influence the timing of your stock purchases? And again, in short, no. I I try to follow what Buffett says and what The Motley Fool teaches. I invest using a bottom-up approach, which just means I invest in good companies, so a bottom-up at the company level, at, at a good valuation. I don't focus too much on the macro and the economics because Those are typically short-term things and I invest for the long-term. I'm investing in companies for 5, 10, 15 years. And ideally, good companies should weather short-term economic headwinds. So if we see 
economic data or stats or outlook that look gloomy, those are probably over the next one to three years. If I'm investing in a good company, they should be able to weather that headwind and still be profitable and grow over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Now, you want to consider maybe if the economic downturn might put your company out of business or if a trend is causing your business to struggle or lose its competitive advantage. So if we're talking about Blockbuster with Netflix coming in, that's a different story. I don't see that as an economic stat. That's a competitor coming in that is disrupting your business model. Now that I would highly consider. But in general, when I see news headlines or economic outlooks about the the economy in the US or even the world economy, I typically don't put too much value on that when I'm making stock investment decisions or even real estate. Now, with all of that said, I am a human and psychology plays a big role for me too. I try my best not to worry about economic data and outlooks, things like that, but sometimes I fall victim to it. It's really hard. It's it's something that is really hard to hear bearish news on TV or read about these doom and gloom situations on the internet and not try to adjust your portfolio accordingly, right? Everybody wants to have the optimal portfolio allocation. If you hear something bad coming, why wouldn't you adjust your portfolio to weather that storm as best as possible and then just fix it when things get better, right? But that goes back to part of the question was timing. And I don't time the market. I just invest bottom up with good companies for the long term. But Like I said, psychology plays a big role. Behavioral finance is a big, big thing in today's markets. I'd say overall, I do a pretty good job of this. I'd say 80 to 90% of the time, I don't do anything based on news headlines and about the economy or economic outlooks, things like that. But I'm definitely not perfect. And I definitely do make mistakes on this from time to time. But in general, I try not to. This week's last question also comes from Matthew Keevy on Instagram. He asked, when do you think a stock should be sold? And I think the answer is never. I know that that's not entirely true. When I was starting investing and people would say never, that would really confuse me because I'd look at Buffett's portfolio and I see him selling stocks all the time. But in theory, you should go into an investment thinking that you're never going to sell. That's how you should approach it. But when it actually comes to practice, there are some times where you might want to sell. And for me, there are typically two times I sell a stock or really any investment for that matter, whether it's real estate, alternative assets, Bitcoin, anything else. And those two things are when the thesis has changed or I have a better investment opportunity. If a company has significantly changed its business model, taken on a ton of debt, it's losing competitors or various other things, then I might consider selling because my investment thesis has changed. Or the second reason is if I expect an investment, say in ticker XYZ, which is a make-believe ticker just for this example. Say I expect XYZ to return 10% annually for the next five years, but I can buy a different investment, say it's in company ABC, that I expect to return 20% annually for the next five years. I'll sell XYZ so that I have cash to buy ABC. Those are really the only two scenarios that I look at. Otherwise, I try not to sell my positions. If you sell for other reasons that are not fundamental like these, Typically, you're trying to time the market, and I try not to do that. And typically, I've been pretty good at not doing that. And one of the ways is I just don't look at my brokerage statement too much. I've joked on Instagram and on social media a little bit this year that I really haven't logged into my brokerage account much since March. And that's the honest truth. And that's one of the best ways to go about not selling stocks. But So in theory, never sell. 
But in reality, there are a couple things that would cause me to want to sell. But in general, it's not based on any news headlines. It's not based on hype or anything like that. Based on fundamentals, the fundamental thesis that I develop for that investment changing, or if I think I have a better investment opportunity. I've actually been posting about this on Instagram lately because I'm battling with this dynamic with Bitcoin. I know Matthew asked about stocks, but I'm, I'm having this dynamic. I'm battling with it with Bitcoin. And I'm considering selling just my initial principal or my initial investment so that now my investment would be zero, right? My new cost basis would be zero. So that means my returns are infinite. If you have no cost basis and you get money from that investment still, the returns are divided by zero. So you have an infinite return or uncalculable return. And I technically couldn't have a losing investment no matter what. So if you put in money, you invest it, and then you take out what you invest and let the last ride, you technically can't lose money as long as that investment can't go negative. Bitcoin can't go negative. Even if Bitcoin went to zero, I would only lose the gains and I would have already taken out the principal that I invested. So that's what I'm considering. I would be leaving some potential gains on the table by reducing the amount that I do have invested. But for me, it would be easier to let it sit essentially forever and just never really think about it or touch it since the only money that I have remaining is considered you know, what a lot of people would consider as quote unquote free money because I have my initial investment back, everything else I got for free by investing in that company. The reason I'm even considering this is because my conviction in Bitcoin isn't really as high as it needs to be. I understand it a lot more now than I used to back when I first bought it in 2017, which I ultimately sold. But my conviction still isn't super high, which is making it hard psychologically not to sell when I'm sitting on over 500% gains in just nine months. When I have high conviction, like I do with Square, just as an example, which I'm up about, say, 400% or so on, I have no interest in selling any of it. But because I don't have full conviction in Bitcoin, the psychological aspect of investing is really gnawing at me and I'm considering selling just my initial investment. I don't want to sell it all. I'm not considering selling it all, but I'm considering just selling that initial position and letting the rest ride. So Matthew, to answer your question, I don't think stocks should be sold, but you could also consider this approach where you just sell your initial investment if it's doubled and you want to keep, or even if it hasn't doubled, you just have gains that you want to let ride and you want to take your initial investment. That's one way you could go about it. It's something I'm considering. I haven't done anything with it yet, but that's the discussion I'm having with myself. It's the argument or conversation or dialogue I'm having in my own brain. And I'm even talking to some listeners of the podcast via Instagram over the last few weeks about the strategy, trying to see what they think and trying to get some other viewpoints on why I might be making a bad decision if I did this. So that is all for the Q&A section of this week's episode. I hope you guys got a lot of value out of it. I know I have fun answering your guys' questions. If you want to have your question actually played on a future episode, you can record your audio question at asktheinvestors.com. You can just record your audio question there. I'll be able to download the file and then include it here in an episode. You'll actually get your question played on the show. We actually give away a prize or free course to somebody if you get your question played on the show, if you record it. And I'll continue to also take questions from Instagram. I know you guys like this. I got a lot of feedback from previous episodes from you guys. A lot of you reached out to me via DM on Instagram and a lot of you continue to reach out with questions, which I absolutely love. I love hearing from you guys. I love talking to you all. And I have a lot of fun answering your questions and talking through different strategies and scenarios with you. So if you want to continue to do it that way, 
feel free to continue to send me more questions via DM on Instagram, and I'll continue to include those in the questions as well. But again, if you want your audio played on the show and to be entered to get a free course from TIP, you can record your question at asktheinvestors.com. And now let's bring in this week's guest, Anthony Zhang. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks for having me on, Robert. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Before we get into the main part of today's episode, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you're only 25 and have already built and sold two companies, secured funding from Mark Cuban and Mark Burnett, and received the Teal Fellowship. Wow, that's a lot to unpack, but uh, I guess to start... I started my first business on Boy Now when I was a freshman in college. Like a lot of college students, I was hungry for food and lazy. So I decided to start a college food delivery app. And I really only thought of it as a sort of like side business, a good way to make some money while I was in college. But I really had a life changing night that night when Mark Cuban and Mark Burnett were guest speakers at the business school. I decided to skip class to go watch them because I was a big fan of the show. And at the end of the speech, 
they decided to do an impromptu Shark Tank session. And um, I was just waving my hand like crazy, wanting to get picked to pitch him. And I got picked. And at the end of the night, after I finished pitching them, I got an offer for $100,000 for 10% of my company. At that point in the company, did you have any revenue? I mean, it kind of sounds like you had just had the idea and next thing you know, you're pitching Mark Cuban. Had you put anything in place? Did you have any revenue at that point or where, where were you at? Luckily, we had some traction at that point. So we were in three campuses and we were making revenue and we're doing hundreds of deliveries a week. What did that infrastructure look like? How were you actually doing the deliveries? Were people signing up? Is it, was it kind of like an early stage DoorDash or was like, what did it look like? Yeah, I would say it was uh, even more early stage than early stage DoorDash. The first iteration of my idea was me posting a bunch of flyers on every single dorm, telling people to text me what they wanted to eat and telling people to Venmo me. So that was our uh, communication and payment platform. And when it got too much to, for me and my roommate to do all the deliveries, I essentially became a call routing center. We had a few friends who wanted to do deliveries. So when they texted the main number, I would then text whoever was on shift and tell them the food order. So we operated like that for a few weeks before we decided we needed to build a platform to build a website to actually power the deliveries. But yeah, the, the early days were, were pretty primitive. And so when you got that investment from the Marks, what did you use that money for? We used that money to expand to more colleges. At that point, you know, we had just expanded to three schools. But since this idea of having not just a regular food delivery app, but a food delivery app where it was only restricted to the students of that campus, only UCLA students could deliver to UCLA teachers and vice versa. And since they had that ID card access, they could really make really convenient deliveries. So imagine a delivery of a Chipotle burrito to not just to your study hall, but to the exact row that you're sitting in in the lecture hall or to you know, study room B on the third floor of the library. That extra level of convenience led to a lot of virality. You know, people love Snapchatting, being like, hey, I'm in, I'm in class and I just got a burrito delivered to me. So we had a ton of demand from campuses and other students who had the same idea being like, this is so cool. I've always had this idea. I want to start this too on my campus. So we had all this pent-up demand and we used the funding to be able to grow to those campuses. What was it like actually securing that deal? I think it'll be interesting to get that perspective for people listening to the show because we see the deals happen on Shark Tank, but they never really go into kind of the nitty-gritty or even like the back-end side of that. Like, What did the contract phase look like? What does the due diligence look like? What did, what did they look into in terms of the business and your, your background personally? And then how did that all kind of flush out? I think when any investor looks at a deal, it's largely a bet on the team. So, you know, we did have revenue, we did have operations, but we only had a few months worth of numbers to look at. And then in terms of evaluating a company that's that early, the numbers really don't mean much. You could have 100% growth from the previous month, but what does that mean from 10 people to 20 people, right? So there really wasn't too much diligence. Uh, it was really just a, a handshake deal and we got it done. But I think what was just really important for me that night was just having people that I looked up to actually believe in me and think that this was something worth pursuing, worth leaving school for even, and uh, helps really change my perspective in terms of focusing on this full time. I mean, getting $100,000 for 10% of your business that early, I mean, I think that's huge. That's a million dollar valuation with 
it sounds like relatively pretty little due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. I think that night, as you said, like thinking of the company as being worth $1 million, that was such a big number to me. You know, call my parents, call my girlfriend, call everybody I know. And uh, it was certainly a very, very life-changing night. I've actually had a couple sharks here on the show. I actually just had Kevin O'Leary a couple weeks back on the show. And then I also had Matt Higgins on the show. And I didn't get the, the chance to ask them this question. And you may or may not know the answer. But I've always wondered if the sharks actually truly fund their deals themselves, or if they maybe have like a private equity firm that they manage and they use money from other investors and they're using that to fund it. Maybe they use a line of credit to fund it. How do you know how Mark Cuban funded your deal? I think it's all his money. Uh, I mean, our deal wasn't like most Shark Tank deals. It wasn't televised. We didn't go through the new processes or anything, but uh, it was from, I'm pretty sure that all of the Sharks fund their money. At least that's what the, I guess the tagline says, right? Like all of them use their, use their money. So I believe it. Yeah. The tagline does say the Sharks are investing their own real money, but I've always wondered if, if that was true or not. It is reality TV after all. Yeah. It would definitely break a lot of dreams if, if that were true. Yeah, I agree. So for some context for people listening to the show, what, what year was all this happening when Mark was making the investment, when you had the idea? Just so we can kind of see where was the delivery app space in general? Was DoorDash a thing? Was Uber Eats a thing? Or were you kind of pioneering that space? Yeah. So they were definitely already starting to grow. We launched in 2013. So I think the next year was when I had that chance to pitch them. And I don't think Uber Eats had launched yet, but DoorDash was definitely a big competitor. So was Postmates. Grubhub had been established for a, a good amount of time then, but we had always just pitched ourselves as, as Postmates, but for college campuses. Because at that point, Postmates was only at San Francisco, New York, Chicago, the really big metros. And where they weren't at was all of the big college towns, you know, Ann Arbor or Tuscaloosa, you know, places where I don't think they got to until maybe three or four years later. And for us, they were the biggest college markets. So how did that company end up working out? I said in the beginning that you sold two companies. So I know you sold the company, but how did that end up playing out? What, what did that look like? So it was at the end of 2016. So about uh, three, four years of running it. And I had had a personal injury. Um, I sustained a spinal cord injury at the beginning of 2016, something that had, you know, really just shifted my perspective. But the company really wasn't doing well in the beginning of 2016. My co-founders had left us and I was in the hospital. And toward the middle of 2016, I resumed my position as CEO and was able to turn around. We were able to grow to 22 campuses at the end of the end of the year. And really the goal and the impetus for me coming back uh, to run this company while I was still in the hospital was because I believed the company had value. I didn't want to give up and just return money to investors. And luckily, we were able to get a good exit out of it. At that time in the food delivery space, there was a lot of consolidation. It was a, really a space where you have to really eat market share to get to profitability. And we had a lot of larger companies looking at us, looking at our foothold in college markets and wanting to make some aggressive acquisitions. Um, so I think the timing was right. I was really, really lucky to have the support of our investors and remaining team to support my decision. And we got a good outcome out of it. Are you able to share who you ended up selling to? 
Yeah. So we sold to a company called Joyrun. So they are also kind of a, a community food delivery based app. And uh, just last month, actually, they got acquired by Walmart. Ah, that's interesting. And and I know DoorDash actually has a big partnership with Walmart. I don't know if Walmart is in the running to potentially acquire DoorDash at some point, but it sounds like they're interested in getting into that delivery space at some point. Yeah, I think, you know, with with solving that last mile logistics standpoint, right? I think a lot of companies want to be able to maybe band together to compete against Amazon. That's the big piece, right? Amazon's doing really well with their they just launched I don't know the name of the program, but something to do with vans and you know these people doing their individual last mile deliveries. And I know they're doing really, really well with that. Walmart is trying to combat that somehow. Definitely. So where did you go from that company? You sold two comp you started and sold two companies. From that first one, where did you go? What was the second company? So after that after that first company, I was I was working for the company that acquired us for a while. And that was really the point where I started getting interested in investing. You know, for the first time in my life, I had disposable money to invest outside of just the stock market and uh, really was able to start developing my own interests. You know, I started investing in, in different companies, you know, my friends' companies, started investing in crypto, started investing in wine, which we can later get into. But the idea for my second company really came in the wake of the whole Me Too movement. I was living in LA at the time, so the whole Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Me Too movement really, really hit hard. And same thing in the startup and venture capital sphere, a lot of women entrepreneurs and underrepresented entrepreneurs started coming out and sharing stories about uh, just the horrible things that uh, venture capitalists were, were saying and doing, sexually propositioning women founders in, in exchange for funding in their company and things like that. And to me, it, it just really didn't sit right. I thought there needed to be a lot more accountability. That's why I created my second company, Know Your VC, which is essentially a glass door for rating angel investors and venture capitalists. What year was this in? This was in 2017. Walk us through the progression of that company. How did that work out when you first started? Did you fund it all yourself? Did you bring in investors? And how did the company grow? Yeah, that one really just started as a weekend project with some friends. We, we were just so, I think, just sickened and felt powerless. And we were like, hey, you know, we're, I think, in a position of privilege and in a position to maybe make some change. Let's just whip up this website and see what we can do. Let's put it out there, see if people react. And I think because of that social climate at the time, we were able to get a lot of traction. So self-funded, didn't really have any expectations for it other than putting up a website, but it grew to a point where we had hundreds of thousands of searches on our site a month. And who is the end buyer in that company? We were acquired by a company called RateMyInvestor.com, led by an awesome team that had a lot of passion and shared the same vision of bringing more transparency to the venture ecosystem. And they had a lot of resources too. So we were really, really happy to partner with them. It's a company that I still sit on the board of today and personally just would you're really, really still passionate about as well. When you went to school, were you planning on leaving college and just working a traditional nine to five? Pretty much. I I always thought starting a company was cool. You know, I, I you know look up to people who started all these really cool tech companies, but I thought to be able to do that, you either had to be a genius or you know go to a top school, work for two years, go to a top MBA. And then maybe start a company after that. I had no idea what life had in store for me. 
So at what point in your first business did you realize that you were probably never going to have a traditional job and you were actually going to you know, take this entrepreneurial path and really run with it? I think it was when I was fortunate enough to get the Teal Fellowship because even, you know, even with that Mark Cuban night and getting a lot of confidence, I was still really scared to drop out of school and not, not do something that all of my friends were doing and you know, on, on that kind of path to go into real estate or investing or something like that. And I really didn't have any examples too of, of peers who had done it. But applying for the Teal Fellowship, getting to meet both existing fellows and ones who had just completed the program, and seeing people my age who had dropped out of school, who had also seen success and were building incredible companies that I think gave me a community to dive into and didn't make it feel so alone when I dropped out of school. For those that aren't familiar with the Teal Fellowship, tell us a little bit about that. The Teal Fellowship is a program where Peter Teal actually takes his own money and gives you a $100,000 grant. You can work on yourself, you can work on a company, but the only criteria is that you have to not be in school. So whether you drop out of high school or middle school or college, that is, uh, you know, the ages really range, but usually it's, it's people in college who end up dropping out for a company. What if you're already out of college? I think there is an age limit, whether it be like 22 or 23. Like you have to be, you can't be like 40 years old going back to college and then trying to, trying to gain the system. And who is Peter Thiel for the audience who might not have heard of him? Why does he do this program? So Peter Thiel was the first investor at Facebook. That's really, I think, what he's really known for. But even before that, he was the co-founder of PayPal. So he has built billion-dollar companies. He has invested in billion-dollar companies. He has started a few more and also is a very successful venture capitalist in his own right. And uh, he is also known for being a contrarian. So. That, I think, was a big reason why he started this program in terms of helping to maybe change people's perspectives on what they needed to do to be able to start a life-changing company. Yeah, Peter Thiel was one of the founding members of PayPal, like you mentioned. He was part of what they, they call the PayPal Mafia, with who a lot of people listening to the show will recognize, uh, Elon Musk. He was also part of the PayPal Mafia and, and founding PayPal. And Peter Thiel also wrote one of the most popular business books I think that I've, I've heard of, uh, Zero to One. A lot of people listening to the show have probably heard of that book as well. Absolutely. That, that is definitely, I think, one of my favorite books. It is kind of cliche because I'm a Teal Fellow and everyone asks me what my favorite book is. But honestly, that is a great read. So from that second business, you started your third company and you got into wine. How did you get into fine wine and what even made you interested in it in the first place? So my, I guess now, obsession with fine wine really started even a few years back, just right after selling the first one. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg, I believe, that was talking about how fine wine as an asset class had outperformed the S&P 500 over the past 25 years. And that just really shocked me. It stayed in my head and I kept thinking about it because I think a lot of people are familiar with that adage, you know, aging like fine wine. So it implies that wine gets better and more expensive probably. But it really never clicked in my head that better and more expensive meant, oh, you could, it's actually a good investment because it gets better as it ages. So spent some time diving into it just as a hobby and realized that even though there were some really, really solid returns to be made, it was just such an inaccessible asset class to get into. I think if you think of a wine collector, everyone has in their mind some really old rich dude with like a smoking jacket and a cigar and 
massive seller um, and probably is worth $100 million. And that's really the landscape of the average wine investor today. Um, it's not an asset that's easy to access. You need connections to get to the best wines. Starting your own wine cellar or proper storage is really, really important for maximizing the future value of your wine, but that can cost thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars. And finally, there really wasn't an efficient market to be able to value, buy, and sell wine. And I think that lack of efficient market, you look at, I think, almost every other asset class, you know, whether it be you know, something as old as stocks or gold or even now real estate, you know, there's, there are marketplaces around that, whether it be a stock exchange mechanic or anything similar. Um, and thinking of something as established, as large, and as old as fine wine, and it lacked that, to me, it was just a massive opportunity to not only make my own experience better, but also give more people access to something like fine wine that they can actually invest in. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash MI. 
netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. It seems that with the rise in technology, there are opportunities to invest in all kinds of obscure things that people never used to be able to invest in. Things like fine art, baseball cards, collectibles, sneakers, and now even equity crowdfunding. And with your platform, Fine Wine, why should investors consider investing in wine? I think with wine, it has a couple of unique properties. I think number one, it's very, very stable. So if you look at what makes the price of a wine, wine bottle go up, number one, it's its aging potential. So a winery is going to be making the wine every single year. And you kind of know, looking back at its historical prices, what its aging potential really is, right? What's its year five price? What's its year 10 price? What's its year 20 price? And from a modeling standpoint, you start to get that predictability into knowing what the future price of a bottle of wine is. I think number two is that it's really not correlated to the market. You know, during good times and bad times, people are still going to be drinking wine, you know, particularly probably in bad times. You know, this pandemic, I think, is, has shown a lot of us increased wine consumption in the household is a real thing. And uh, I think that in turn has led to really, really stable long-term returns. I think the third thing is a lot of people are interested in wine. With alternative assets, apart from diversifying, I think a big component of it is wanting to be interested in that asset class. If you're investing out of stocks and bonds to diversify, why not pick something that you can learn more about and that you can share? Are investors actually buying bottles of wine, taking delivery of them and storing them? Or are they just buying ownership in a company that owns valuable wines as its underlying asset? What exactly does it mean to invest in fine wine? So there are a couple ways to do it, but with VinoVest, my company, it allows you direct ownership into bottles of wine. We take care of all the heavy lifting of storage, of insurance, of making sure that that bottle of wine is safe uh, from both you and from uh, breakage or anything like that. And if you want to drink your profits at the end of the day or take a bottle to celebrate at the end of the year, you have that option. So I think having that direct tangibility and not having it be like, a share of wine that you can't really touch or don't really know what it is and have that direct ownership, I think it's important. I know that my next question might be quote unquote a little silly and it might be a little bit out there, but it's one of the first things I thought of when you and I connected and I started researching investing in fine wine. Since most things that people invest in, even though they're also obscure, like baseball cards, sneakers, even art, they're not consumables. So they're not really going anywhere unless the item gets destroyed or stolen. But with wine, I think it's different because someone could literally pour a bottle of wine down the drain and that entire investment is instantly gone. How does this dynamic impact investing in fine wine? Are there ways to protect against this? Absolutely. So I alluded earlier that there aren't really many things that can make the price of a bottle of wine go down. It's pretty stable. The main risk is with how you store it. You know, if you're storing it in a hot place or it's getting moved around a lot or gets broken or damaged, that is your investment completely down the drain. Luckily, we do have third-party insurance policies. So whether it be a catastrophe like a fire or human error like someone breaking it or just receiving wine that's not in, the, not in a good condition, our insurance policies can protect against that and be able to give you your market value back. Especially in an industry, especially with a lot of, I think, alternative assets where there aren't a lot of regula regulatory uh, protocols. We want to be able to provide safety, you know, the equivalent of an FDIC type of backing 
to be able to help people feel safe investing in something new and unfamiliar. Is that insurance something that we have to pay for as investors, or is it something that we pay for indirectly through, say, your platform? Because you're collecting fees, you just use your fees to cover that type of insurance. It's exactly the latter. So with our, me- our membership fees, it really covers everything you need from storage to insurance to picking and buying and selling all the transactions, etc. How does a critic's rating impact the investment worthiness of a wine? Is it similar to a stock analyst rating on a stock? Honestly, it is. Uh, so especially with some of the larger critics, their say really does impact consumer behavior and consumer demand. And with that, also pricing. In addition to critics, though, it's really, really become, I think, a lot more relevant in mainstream culture, especially amongst celebrities and sports superstars. So I'm not sure you follow LeBron on Instagram or Twitter, but he loves wine. And just the other day, he posted a photo of a bottle of wine. And that particular bottle of wine, that particular year, popped over 20% on the secondary market the moment he posted that photo. So I think just like the stock market, you know, you have analysts that can shake, uh, maybe maybe move prices a little bit, and you also have uh, large influencers. And in the wine world, it's the same. You mentioned that wine is typically a pretty stable asset. How does things like LeBron posting a photo about it causing a price to skyrocket? How does that play into the stability of wine prices? So I think with things like that, it's usually a short-term pop. When you're looking at wine. It really just needs time to age in the bottle to, to get better. And number two, it really needs time for global consumption to do its work because the less and less there is of a supply of the bottle of wine, the higher its price. So something like LeBron posting a photo of wine, it really just accelerates that process. So something that may have taken, say, five years to double in price, maybe it's going to just double in price in three years because of that you know, quote-unquote LeBron effect. So if you're an investor in a specific type of wine or bottle of wine, say, and I'm just going to use random numbers here for illustrative purposes, but let's say there's 10 bottles of those wine. LeBron has a couple of them and he, he shows them off and you've invested in this. Say they, because LeBron talked about it, he drank maybe two bottles, a couple other people might have drank in a couple other bottles. Now that supply has gone way down, but the demand is still there. Does that cause a big increase in the value of that wine? It definitely does. Just simple supply and demand dynamics. I think that's another unique thing about wine, right? Because of that consumable factor, that supply is never going to be there again, right? You can't go back in time and make that bottle of wine for that year. And that's what I think also has helped it have such steady returns. I'm sure it can vary wildly, but in general, what do you see for returns for people that are investing in fine wine? So the fine wine market on average has given 11.6% annualized returns over the past 30 years. And what data do you use to track that? Is there a specific bottle or type of wine or is there just is there like a index or something that tracks wine in general like there is for the stock market? Yeah, so luckily because wine is such an old asset class, there's a lot of historical pricing data. So the index that we use tracks 100 of the world's top traded wines. And we also track their prices over time. So that's how we're able to establish a good picture of the wine market. So it's our attempt at an S&P 500, so to say. What is the liquidity of an investment in fine wine like? Are investors typically stuck with the investment for years or can they decide to sell after just a short period of time if they'd like to? 
So there are wines that are highly liquid on the secondary market. There also are wines that no one really cares about and you're kind of stuck with. So with VinoVest, our algorithm does prioritize wines that have secondary market liquidity, and we're able to sell it off, whether it to be a wine collector, an auction house, a wine distributor, or maybe even just a, a restaurant or a retailer. So the good thing is when we're looking at liquidity, it's not just the wine investment market, it's also the wine consumption market that can really greatly help speed things up. So with COVID and not as many people going out to eat, not as many bars and restaurants buying their supplies, their alcohol, their food, how does that impact the fine wine investing industry? So we really did not see too much of a, um, a dip in the market at all. So even in that flash crash of the stock market this year, I think it was end of February, fine wine prices have continued to climb. Where we did see an impact was in the fine wine futures market, where in, I think in the worst of the lockdowns in Europe, it was around like May, June. And that's where some of the futures from Bordeaux came out. Even though it was an excellent vintage, you know, really, really highly rated, they priced their futures at 25 to 30% below averages. And for a long-term wine investor like us, we saw that this was an opportunity to get in at you know, a really, really solid price. And if we believe that, say, in the next five to seven years, COVID is not going to be an issue anymore, which we do believe, that it's really a no-brainer to be able to get in below the ground level and invest for the long term. So we saw that on the futures market, we saw a couple of really great opportunities. And then just on like, the market for wine that's already been released, the demand is still there. Right? People still need to drink wine. So it was just a lot more demand from individual collectors rather than from restaurant groups. If someone wants to exit their position in a fine wine, how do they go about doing this and how does it work? So before VinoVest came around, it was really pretty tough. I'd done this before. You pretty much need to either take it to a wine auction, sell it on Facebook or eBay, or you work with a wine broker. The auction route, usually you need a pretty big wine collection to even qualify for their minimums. And they take anywhere between 10 and 20% of your profits. Same with working with a broker, it's usually 10 or 15%. And then with the you know, kind of Facebook, eBay, kind of other group route, you know, really good luck on knowing what your price is. So they really lacked, I think, an accessible marketplace where you can actually A, fairly see the value of your wine, and then B, find enough counterparties for liquidity. And what we've done at VinoVest is to take all of these channels and take all of these exchanges that are happening all around the world regionally. And then what we do is we're able to pull aggregated demand and supply data. So we can match you up with a buyer in China or a buyer in Australia, not just the best price in your country. And we really do unite the global liquidity for the fine wine market. So if you connect to investors in different parts of the world, say somebody in the US, somebody in China, for an example, if you're providing the storage for these wines, I'm assuming that that wine doesn't even move. It just essentially stays where it is and you just change maybe in the back end of your system who the ownership of that bottle of wine or case of wine is. Exactly. So the great thing is that wine storage is a really, really established industry. Most of the big players use the same network of storage facilities. So when we're buying and selling wine, most of the time the wine never moves. To your point, it just changes title. Are you storing any wine with Kevin O'Leary? I wish. He is someone who is a huge wine lover. I would love to get him on board as a wine investor one time soon. Or even better, just get to talk to him and see his awesome wine collection. 
Yeah. As, as we talked about at the beginning, of course, you had Mark Cuban invest in, in one of your companies. It sounds like it might be a good shoe-in for getting a talk with Kevin. I would love that. You're the fine wine investing expert here. So I guess I don't know what I don't know. As I was preparing for this conversation, as I was doing research, and even as we've been talking, I've been coming up with questions kind of on the spot and trying to think of all the things that me as somebody who doesn't know how to invest in these, these things and, and somebody listening to the show, if I was a, in the audience, what would I want to know? But I'm sure there's things that I've missed. So what important questions or topics might I have missed that are important for the listeners to know? Oh, that's a good question. I think really on how to get started, right? Most people are, are not wine investing experts. Um, and it can be daunting to really start or know where to start. So for us, we keep it simple as asking really just a few basic financial questions to get you started. So I think kind of the main things like A, how much are you planning on investing? B, how long do you want to hold it for? You know, what's your investment timeline? And then C, your your risk tolerance, right? Do you want to go aggressive into the market or are you more of a conservative investor? And based on factors like those our algorithm that we've built out can then create a personalized portfolio for each person. So we essentially will deploy the capital for you. You, know, you don't know what the best wines to invest in are. That's really our job. And we're able to then buy you that portfolio, safely store it and insure it for you, and then give you a picture into the wine market, tracking your wine prices, also rebalancing your portfolio, buying and selling new wine throughout the years, and really actively helping you learn more about wine as well. So we really see ourselves as that on-ramp. You know, I'm sure a um, retail investor who maybe has experience in the stock market or in real estate can start to see some similarities between it. Because just like blue chip stocks like Amazon and Apple, there's your equivalent in the wine world too. Just like emerging market stocks, there's also emerging regions in the wine world. So uh, we really try to bridge that gap in terms of the knowledge and make it an educational journey as well. I've been asking this question of quite a few guests lately, but coming from a fellow millennial, especially one that's been as successful as you have been, I think your answer could be especially important for the audience to hear. So as we go through this pandemic, there are people that are using it as a time to slack off and be lazy, and there are others that are using it to get better. What have you done personally during this time to better yourself? Wow, that's a that's an awesome question. I'm gonna be honest in that there was some slacking off in the beginning, but a couple months ago I recently got engaged, and uh, that really I think helped change a lot of my perspective in terms of who I wanted to be in the future. You know, as a better future husband, as a better entrepreneur, as a better person in general. So I really did invest in myself in these past few weeks, whether it be starting to work with a trainer for my physical health, starting to work with a therapist for my mental health. And for the first time, also working with a, a CEO coach to make sure that as, as the company grows, uh, for myself, I'm the type of CEO that can also level up myself and be the leader that the company needs me to be at five people versus 50 people versus 500 people. So I think just continuous development in yourself, it could be something as easy as holding yourself accountable to, 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 to your physical health, to your diet. And it could be something as big as you know, making a commitment to, to better in yourself mentally and emotionally. But that is something that I've, I've done in the recent months of the pandemic. Congratulations on your engagement. Thank you. Thank you. You've been around some ultra successful people, Peter Thiel, Mark Cuban, Mark Burnett. I'm sure there's been many others that we didn't even mention. What has been some of the most influential advice that you've received? 
It could be about business, entrepreneurship, investing, or even just life. What piece of advice has had the biggest impact on you? I think the main thing was not to be afraid of taking action. I think a lot of, a lot of people have great ideas, right? Ideas are a dime a dozen, but for the people who actually commit to putting that pen to paper or to writing that first line of code or to making that first website or first podcast, right? It, it takes a big leap of faith. And a lot of times it's stopped by not anybody else. It's stopped by yourself, right? You have doubts, you have fears, you want to put it off until next week. So my advice is to just do it. You know, you have, you have time now, right? We're all sitting at home. So just spend some time doing it, putting it out there. And if it sucks, like that's fine. Like if it doesn't work, that's fine. Learn something from it and then try again. So that would be my one piece of advice. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Where can everyone listening go to learn more about you and all the different things you got going on? So the best place to find me is on Twitter. My handle, I can, I can drop it in the description after maybe, but it's Anthony underscore J underscore Zhang. And then I'm also fairly accessible via email. So if anyone wants to just shoot me an email, I read every single one, anthony at vinovest.co. And yeah, I would love to hear from people. I know the audience tends to be pretty active when people are willing to speak with them. So guys, feel free to take advantage of that opportunity. Anthony was gracious enough to give us his email. So feel free to reach out, ask him any questions you have. I'll also be sure to put a link to his Twitter handle and type it out in the podcast description below. Whatever podcast player you're listening to, you should be able to find it there. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you could see it below in the description. I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can follow me as well. My handle is the Robert Leonard. And the same goes for Instagram. All the related show notes, books, things we talked about will be below in your favorite podcast player. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. Awesome. It was a pleasure. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.